0: It is wonderful to see you here today. If we've not met before, my name is Ben and I'm the vicar here at St Thomas's. And if it's your first time with us, a really, really, really warm welcome to you. Today we're starting a new series here at St Thomas's called Faith, Hope and Love. As we follow the set readings that um, lots of the church all over the world are looking at for the next three Sundays. Faith, Hope and Love. And today we're looking at Faith, Acts chapter 2 verses 36 to 41. Please do open your Bibles and follow along with me. Or turn on your phone and search for Acts 2 verses 36 to 41. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added. Oh, we will start that again. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wouldn't it be amazing to see that? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, indeed. Let me just first introduce this sermon series, and then I'm going to hand over to Emma, and I'll explain a little bit about what she's going to share in just a moment. Paul wrote a letter to the first church in Corinth, an ancient city in the Roman Empire. And that letter we know as 1 Corinthians. And as Paul was writing to this church, it had all kinds of problems. A bit of sin, division, disunity. And in that context, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And perhaps the most famous passage of that letter is 1 Corinthians 13 which we know about, we know it as the love passage that's often read at weddings. But Paul actually wasn't writing about romantic love. He was writing about the kind of love that we should have for one another because of the kind of love that Jesus showed for us. He talks about, you know, love keeping no record of wrongs. Um, Love is patient, love is kind, just like Jesus. And at the end of that passage to the church in Corinth, he wrote this, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now if Paul was going to write a letter to St. Thomas's Newcastle today, our issues might be slightly different from the church in Corinth, although we may share some of the same issues. Um, but we do have our issues like any church does. We are not perfect. Um, and if you thought St. Thomas' was perfect, as soon as you walked in the door this morning, or as soon as I walked in the door this morning, it ceased to be. But we're being made perfect because Jesus is perfect. But if Paul was going to write something to us, I think he'd write a, the similar thing. He'd say to St. Thomas', St. Thomas's, now these three remain, faith, hope and love. And so we're going to look at these three fantastic things over the next three weeks. Today we're looking at faith. Now, two people are going to help me share today. Um, one is Emma, who's going to come up in just a moment, and Talua is going to come up at the end. And I've asked these two um, to share what faith, how faith has shaped them as. A disciple, so Emma's going to share first for a couple of minutes. Um, Emma has been in the church family here f- ever well ever since we ever since we launched was an intern here, and you 'll often see her leading worship she 's fantastic so i'd love it if you could welcome and encourage Emma and she 's going to share on what faith means to her as
1: a disciple Hi everyone. Um, So yeah, as Ben said, I was asked to share on how faith has shaped me as a disciple. Um, Lots of things went through my head. There are so many things I'd love to share, but I only have a couple of minutes. Um, So I decided to share um, the first time I remember God answering a prayer in my life, and it happened to be quite a powerful answer to prayer, Um, because it really just shaped my faith and the way I see God um, throughout, I guess, my life up until now. Um, So I grew up a Christian, my parents raised me um, with their own faith Um, and it became real to me when I was about seven years old um, and we were on holiday in Florida in Disneyland Um, and we were praying together one night as we always did as a family and my sister who's about 10 at the time um, just said, how do I know Jesus loves me? Cause she wasn't really convinced of it. Um, and so her parents said, well, you know, you can read about it in the Bible, but why don't we pray and let's pray together as a family and let's say, Jesus, would you show us that you love us? Like, can, we, can we ask you for, for proof almost of that? And so we went to bed and then the next day uh, we were in one of the Disney parks and we at some point saw um, just this crowd of people looking up at the sky and taking photos and as you would, we thought, well, what's going on? So we looked up and a plane had just written in the sky, Jesus loves you. And it was, um, I was quite taken aback and I was about seven and I remember this so clearly. We took photos of it and we were just literally just rejoicing as a family. So we thought, what on earth? They always say, "He won't put a writing in the sky. Um, <laughs> but here it was. Um, and the fact that Jesus would do that for a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old who just wanted just a little bit of proof. How do I know that Jesus loves me? Um, it was extravagant, it was extraordinary expression um, of his love and just an incredible answer to prayer and it links in for me uh, to Acts 2.39 where it says the promises for you and your children and all who are far off because the promise of salvation was true for me at age seven as it is true for me now at age 23, as it is true for everyone in here no matter how far off you feel, no matter how old you are or anything, um, that Truth of salvation is true for you.)
0: Thank you so much, Emma. So on the back of that, we are looking at faith today. Now you may be here, and you may be asking, what is faith? And I just want to say to you today, whether you've been following Jesus for years and years or whether you're just checking out who Jesus is and you're coming to church maybe for the first time today, I want to say that you do have a lot of faith. It may be that you think that faith is only for those weird religious types, but everybody has faith. Every single day, every single one of us exercises a huge amount of faith. When you got in the car this morning, if you got in the car to come to church, you exercise faith that your car wasn't going to break down and get you here safely. When you fly on an aeroplane, you exercise faith that it's going to get you to your destination safely. When you eat a meal, you exercise faith that it's been cooked well and that it's going to sustain you and not make you ill. I had a lovely meal last night cooked by Lee, Mexican. It was very good. When we tell somebody that we love them, We're putting our faith in them that they'll use that information wisely and reciprocate that love. Every single day, we're exercising a level of faith all of the time. Now, the dictionary definitions of faith are as follows. And we're going to pick these apart a little bit and explain how these don't really meet what Jesus has for us. Dictionary definition of faith is this. Complete trust or confidence in someone or something a strong belief in the doctrines of religion based on spiritual conviction rather than proof. Now question, is this really what Jesus had in mind when he spoke of faith? So we're going to look at faith through the lens of Acts 2 verses 36 to 41. So do keep that passage open in front of you. And we're going to look at three things today. Firstly, the importance of faith. Secondly, the promise of faith in Jesus. And thirdly, the sufficiency of faith in Jesus. So firstly, the importance of faith in Jesus. So our passage today... Acts 2, 36 to 41, is in the middle of a sermon that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, was giving to a huge crowd that had gathered after Jesus had risen from the dead and after the Holy Spirit, God himself, had been poured out on the believers. And the message of that sermon is summed up in verse 36. Look at it with me. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, before we go any further, let's just stop and think about this verse for just a second. Peter is speaking to a group of Jewish people in the context of being under occupation by the Roman Empire. And he's trying to convince people that Jesus really is God. Now, in the Roman Empire, gods were mighty and strong. They certainly wouldn't have been crucified. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah who would come and lead the people out of military occupation away from Rome. And yet here's Peter saying, believe in Jesus, the one who was crucified, the one who was killed, believe in him. He is Lord. Now why would Peter do this? It makes no sense. If I was going to convince somebody of a God, of a deity, of an all-powerful figure I wouldn't choose to talk about a crucified man. And yet, that's what Peter is saying. It makes no sense. In fact, to the Romans, it looks strange and pathetic. To the Jews, it was confusing. The only reason Peter would have said this is because it was actually true. It's the only logical explanation for why Peter would say it. Now, look at this next verse, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What do we need to do? The people listening to Peter were cut to the heart. Now the Greek word there actually means that their hearts were pierced. Literally, as Peter was speaking, their hearts were pierced as he spoke. Faith began to rise in the disciples as they heard, in the crowd, sorry, as they heard about this crucified Lord and Messiah. The crowd then say, Well, what shall we do? What do we need to do in response to this news? And Peter's reply is this Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter is saying, come to a living faith in Jesus pictured in... Baptism. Baptism, this glorious picture of dying to self and rising to new life with Jesus. Tonight we've got two baptisms. Becca is being baptised and somebody who came to faith just in Holy Week two weeks ago. Next week there's three baptisms at the morning service. Joy, um, David and Alice Llewellyn are being baptised next week. Now, one of those that's being baptised tonight, in fact, the the person who came to faith in Holy Week, texted me several times yesterday and said, Ben, I just cannot wait for tomorrow. I'm going to be reborn. I'm going to be made a new creation. This is somebody who's encountered the love of Jesus for the first time just two weeks ago. Now, this is why faith is important. The question then is, how can we have faith? If that's what faith leads to, how can we have faith? Well, back to our our dictionary definitions, complete trust or confidence in someone, a strong belief in doctrine. Now, I think that these fall far too short of what Jesus thinks of when he thinks of faith. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't always have complete trust or confidence in Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, we often trust ourselves more than him. When things get difficult, who do we turn to? Ourselves, people around us. Some of us turn to money. Some of us turn to security and relationships to status. It seems that without God's intervention, the human heart is geared towards putting our faith in anything except God. Now, it's not just Christians that have figured this out. There was a man called Dave Foster Wallace, who was a well-known atheist and he put it in a speech like this that he gave at a university in 2005 he said this here's something that's weird but true in the day-to-day trenches of adult life there is actually no such thing as atheism now bear in mind this is an atheist speaking there is no such thing as atheism there is no such thing as not worshiping everybody worships the only choice we get is what to worship And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship, anything else you put your faith in, will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. That's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. On one level, we all know this stuff already. Now, do you see what this atheist is saying? We all put our faith in something, and that faith leads us to obedience. If you start becoming obedient to money, you'll never have enough. You'll just keep chasing it. Anything that we put our faith in, we will become a slave to, unless we choose to worship and put our faith in Jesus. Jesus won't eat us alive. Instead, he gives his life for us, and that's why we can be obedient to him. Now, a really quick observation, just from these opening verses. when Luu Rotax wrote that the hearts of the crowd were pierced as Peter spoke. What is going on here? Well, when I was reading this earlier this week, I was reminded of Isaiah 53 verse five, a prophecy written about Jesus hundreds of years before he was crucified. And Isaiah wrote this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds, we are healed. And it suddenly struck me, the crowd were pierced to the heart because they suddenly realised that this crucified Messiah was pierced for them. They could have no faith by themselves. But Jesus, being pierced for their transgressions, pierced their hearts and in doing so made them whole. You see, everything else that we worship will pierce our hearts, but we'll just keep bleeding. Jesus pierces our hearts and we're made alive again. Jesus was pierced so that instead of us having to pay the ultimate cost of our own wrongdoing, we may have our hearts pierced by his love and grace for us, that we might be free and know his presence and power, even though we didn't deserve it. And this leads us on to the second thing, the promise of faith. In Jesus. Verse 39. Emma's already talked about this a little bit. For those of us that struggle with faith, look at this amazing verse, verse 39. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, all for whom the Lord our God will call. Now look at the promise, the effects of this promise of faith. New life, forgiveness, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit for you. And this promise was made to you even when you were far off. And if you feel far off right now, perhaps you feel far away from God, this promise is still for you. Faith is not about us. It's not about how we feel. It's not something we could earn. It's a promised gift to us. Paul says this in Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9. "'By grace you have been saved through faith.'" And that, not of yourselves, is the gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one can boast. Faith is a gift. We don't have to drum it up within ourselves. We don't have to strive for it. We receive it. We, re- we receive the promise of faith. Faith is received. It's not achieved. You know, it's not like God keeps a score of how strong your faith is. It's, you know, it's not like when you read up in the, wake up in the morning and read your Bible, he gives you an extra 10 points on your faith chart. And then when you say your prayers before you go to bed, you get another 10. And then when you forget to pray one day, he docks you 15 points. But then you go to small group the next day and you get an extra 45. It's not like that. Faith is a gift. And through this gift... We receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead living in us. Now, one of the things that I really want to challenge myself and all of us on this morning is that this gift of faith is not just for us. This gift of faith that leads to forgiveness, new life, power and presence of the Holy Spirit within us is supposed to transform not just our lives, but the lives of the people around us and ultimately a whole region. And as churches do that, we're part of the new one network of churches, local churches changing nations, as local churches do that all over the world, even the world is on its way to being transformed. So question... What might God do through you tomorrow at work as you go about your normal Monday because you have received the gift of faith? He can do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. And here's another thing to think about. This gift of faith is not just for now. What God, God does in us and through us because of this promise will last long into the future. James was talking about the essays that he's been writing about revival history, is that right? You know, the faith of the, the, faith of the people have gone before us, but it's still having an effect on us today. I became a Christian at a church called Beverly Minster. It's a great, huge, beautiful barn of a church in, in, in Beverly. It's a beautiful building. The original architects and visionaries behind the building began work on it in 1220. They didn't finish building Beverly Minster until the 15th century, over 200 years of work. By faith, the original builders began the work, knowing that they would never see the best of it. By faith, they trusted that they didn't, what they were doing wouldn't just have significance then, but would have significance into the future. And I even dare to believe that one of the people working on that, building that church, even had the faith to believe that in the early 2000s, some young people there might put their faith in Jesus and that their lives would be transformed. What we do now can have an impact into the future by faith. What you do is not insignificant. What God does through you is not insignificant. You're not just going to work tomorrow. Instead, ask God, what are you going to do? That's immeasurably more than I could ask or imagine as I do what you've called me to do today. Now finally, the sufficiency of faith in Jesus. Peter tells the crowd in verse 40 that they can be saved Peter implores them, save yourselves. You can be saved through faith in Jesus. Now, it may be that you're reading this and asking the question, how on earth can faith save us? Well, it saves us as we've already seen because Jesus was pierced so that we might be whole. As we've already said, faith in him is the only thing that won't destroy us. We're saved when our hearts find their rest, In Jesus. St. Augustine put it like this You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Is your heart restless today? As I've been speaking, have you realized that you've been putting your faith in institutions or in stuff or in unhealthy relationships, other things? rather than the person of Jesus Christ? Is your heart restless? Perhaps all of us need again to choose to receive this gift of faith that our hearts might find rest in him. Now, if you feel weak today for whatever reason, perhaps you're going through a difficult time, you feel battered and bruised, perhaps you feel that your faith is tiny, know this, It is not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's who your faith is in. Tim Keller said this, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. You see, if faith is about us, we'll look at the problems that we face in life, those difficult decisions that we've got to make, the fear of man, disappointment, unfulfilled dreams, broken relationships, deep emotional and physical pain. And those mountains, those obstacles that we face will always look huge. Because in our own strength, By putting faith in ourselves or in other things other than Jesus, they're always going to look like mountains that we can not climb. Mark Batterson put it like this. Maybe some of you need to receive these words today. There comes a moment when you must stop talking to God about the mountain in your life and start talking to the mountain in your life about your God. There comes a moment when you must quit talking to God about the mountain in your life and start talking to the mountain about your God. You proclaim his power to that mountain. You declare his sovereignty. You affirm his faithfulness. You stand on his word and you cling to his promises. And here's the thing. Jesus said that it would only take faith the size of a mustard seed. That's the smallest seed that they would have known about. And you can say to a mountain, move, and it will move. Those disappointments, those hurts, those failures, those unfulfilled dreams, they're always going to look huge when we look at them through our own eyes. We can't do anything about them. But when we start telling those things about God, they'll begin to move. Yesterday, a few of us were at our, bishop's new, uh, our new bishops' inauguration at the cathedral. And Isaiah 40 was read um, over us. I just want to read these verses to us. Um, Isaiah 40 was written in the context of God's people complaining and whinging. They were seeing mountains and they didn't know how they were going to move. And this is what God said to the people through Isaiah. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Do you see what he's doing? He's telling the problems about how big God is. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired and weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, those who have faith in the Lord, some translations put it, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Why do you complain, O people of St Thomas's? Why do you say that your way is hidden from the Lord? Have you not heard Do you not know the Lord is the everlasting God? Now, that last verse, verse 31, but those who hope in the Lord, those that have faith in the Lord, the Hebrew word there is actually those who wait on the Lord. And what does it mean to wait? Well, it means that even in the midst of the storm, even when life is difficult, we wait on the Lord. In the pain, in the hurt, in the unfulfilled dreams, we wait on the Lord. And when we don't feel like we can keep going, when life just feels like it's too much, when the decisions that we've got to make feel too overwhelming, we wait on the Lord and we receive his strength. We receive his power. And it's not about us, it's about who our faith is in. And as we wait, the gift of faith rises and it's a gift, and it rises, and it rises, and it rises, and we'll do things in the name of God that we never thought possible. Now, this is what propelled people to do outrageous things because of faith in Jesus. Again, I was reading earlier this week while on um, annual leave about some of the missionaries that went out 100, 150 years ago. And, um, They went out to different parts of the world and they used to pack coffins when they were on the mission field because they thought that they might never come back, but they were willing to give everything because of their faith in Jesus. And they thought that through what God was going to do through them, that nations would never look the same again. And it's true, they didn't. Now Mark Batterson again, talking about those missionaries, he wrote this and this really struck me. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things. When did we start to believe that faithfulness is just holding the fort? That playing it safe is actually safe? That there is any greater privilege than sacrifice? That radical is anything but normal? Jesus did not die to keep us safe, He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. The complete surrender of your life to the cause of Christ isn't radical. It's normal. It's time to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. It's time to go all in and all out for the all in all. Now church, faith in Jesus, no matter how you feel a quality of your faith is today, will always lead you on to an adventure of seeing God do more than we could ask or imagine. The gift of faith is not just for us, it's so that we might see a region transformed and not just now, but into eternity. Now, for those of you that are struggling today, and I'm guessing there's quite a few of us, maybe God feels far off. The promise is for you. Perhaps you're concerned about your children. As Emma said earlier, the promise is for them as well. Perhaps you're facing mountains that just look so big to you, you don't even know how you're going to get around them, let alone climb over them. Proclaim God's power and sovereignty to them. He's the everlasting God, he never grows tired or weary. And as we wait on him, the same thing happens to us. So church, three things. The importance of faith in Jesus. Without it, we'll be pierced and we'll just bleed and we won't get any new life at all. But Jesus gives us new life. The promise of faith in Jesus, it's a gift. We don't have to earn it. It's freely received. And the sufficiency of faith in Jesus for what God has called us to do today. You see the dictionary definition is wrong. Faith is so much more than just a strong belief in a set of doctrines. It's a gift from God that unlocks the promises of the gospel, the presence of the Holy Spirit and his transformative power in our lives now and into eternity. Amen. Now, just as the band come up, Tulu is going to come and share um, his two minutes just for me at the end about this. And like we did with Emma, let's encourage Tallulah as he comes up.
2: Morning, everyone. It's a blessing to be back here again. I haven't been here since uh, March, so I'm blessed to be here today. And if it sounds like anything I've said has already been said, I apologize. We did not coordinate this, but I think God is trying to hammer a message home. Growing up, I was an acquaintance of God. I accepted his existence and believed everything I was taught about him. Honestly, God seemed like a pretty nice guy but I didn't question how his existence should impact my life, save for having to go to Sunday school every week. There is a world of difference between being someone's acquaintance and being accepted as a member of their family. Eight years ago, I stopped being God's acquaintance and was adopted into an eternal family. This moment of salvation changed the course and the purpose of my life. In verses 38 to 39, we see the commission and the calling of God on our lives. As a son of God, I've enjoyed the presence of the Holy Spirit since I first said yes to Jesus. And from that place of relationship, I've desired to tell others of the joy I found in him alone. I love this church because it's helped me to fall more and more in love with Jesus. And out of that increasing love for him, I've desired more and more to tell others about him with increasing faith that God goes with me into every conversation, with the same desire to save people as the desire he had to save me. So to finish this small epilogue to Ben's sermon on faith, I'd like to declare again that the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off. Don't write anyone off from receiving and believing the gospel. If God has called us to this faith, we can have faith, that he'll reach the people who, in our lives who are far off from him. All it takes is faith the size of a mustard seed. God bless you.